This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Marx's grave are the following words. The philosophers have only interpreted the world in various ways. The point, however, is to change it. Hello, good morning, and you're very welcome to Talking Books on Newstalk 106 to 108. I'm Susan Cahill. This morning, one of the world's greatest thinkers, economist Thomas Piketty, discusses his powerful new book, Capital, in the 21st century, described by one critic as Fifty Shades of Grey for the thinking classes. And to celebrate Africa Day, we're going to highlight the contributions of Shinwa Shebe, Mariama Ba and other African writers to world literature. This is a show about change and diversity, inequality and responsibility, globalisation and wealth. But first, the economics of inequality and the Frenchman shaking up its foundation. Thomas Piketty, is one extraordinary writer and critical thinker. He's original, gifted, ambitious, pragmatic, optimistic and remarkably humble. His new book, Capital in the 21st Century, has been hailed as one of the watershed books in economic thinking, a magisterial treaty on capitalism and has without doubt rocked the very shaky foundations of contemporary economics. Thomas Piketty is Professor of Economics at the EHESS, the School for Advanced Studies in Social Sciences and Professor at the Paris School of Economics. He's advised Ségolène Royal and other prominent French political players and also manages to find the time to write for French newspaper Liberation and occasionally writes the odd op-ed for Le Monde. Oh, and by the way, he managed to receive a PhD at the tender age of 22. In Capital in the 21st century, Piketty analyses a unique collection of data from 20 countries ranging as far back as the 18th century and asks, what are the lessons of history? And while this book is quite the tour de force, The analysis is sobering. Thomas Piketty believes the main driver of inequality, the tendency of returns on capital to exceed the rate of economic growth, threatens to generate extreme inequalities that stirs discontent and undermines economic values. Put simply, capitalism is not functioning. In fact, it could be argued it's digging its own grave. Piketty's findings will undoubtedly transform the debate on public debt, taxation, globalisation, inequality and, of course, the accumulated wealth of the top 1%. Well, earlier in the week, I had the pleasure of talking to this modern French revolutionary and I put it to him, is he picking up where Karl Marx left off? Let's have a listen to his thought-provoking manifesto. The project of the book is somehow to put 
the study of capital into history. So capital in the 21st century, in my mind, means that you know I'm, I'm taking the issue of capital as raised in particular by Karl Marx in the 19th century, but I try to put it into in an historical perspective. So it's not a book of pure thinking about capital. Karl Marx's book was a lot of theoretical uh, speculation and, you know, sometimes uh, quite uh, difficult uh, to follow, I must say. My book, I think, is a lot more concrete in the sense that it's rooted in history and I'm trying to study, the, you know, how the structure of wealth and ownership and capital and inequality has changed since the Industrial Revolution, particularly since the time of Karl Marx. I'm trying to see, in the end, what do we know about the forces at work and what do we know about the evolution? And what are the lessons? It strikes me that, you know, you've put together quite an impressive narrative in terms of the great thinkers in economic history and also some of the moral philosophers. But the book looks at what are the lessons that we can derive from the data. So what should we be thinking about? Well, yeah, I guess the main lesson probably at a very general level is that there are several possible uh, futures. You know, you don't have deterministic uh, economic laws that sort of tell you what's going to happen. You know, at some point, Marx believed in universal law saying inequality is necessarily going to be higher and higher. And then at some point, there will be the falling rate of profit in Marx's vocabulary is going to put an end to this process. And there's going to be a final uh, revolution or cataclysmic uh, end uh, to this process. Then in the post-war period, during the Cold War uh, era, Kuznets, who was a U.S. economist, proposed a completely different economic law, saying that in the advanced stages of economic development, there was a, a natural tendency for inequality to reduce, you know, as opposed to rising inequality predicted by Marx. Now, my conclusion is that in a way, both were wrong. So, because you don't have, you have several forces that are pushing in different directions, and in the end, what we will get really depends on the institutions and policies that we set up. So, for instance, Marx was concluding that capitalists will dig their own grave by accumulating more and more capital so that the return to capital, the rate of profit will fall, so that in the end they will dig their own grave and this will put an end to the process. This is not at all my conclusion. You know, my conclusion, if we want to summarize it with a simple inequality, is the tendency of the rate of return to be uh, permanently higher than the growth rate. So uh, I don't believe in the falling rate of profit that Karl Marx believed in. I, I actually think that from a purely economic viewpoint, you can have a rate of return to capital that is permanently higher than the growth rate, which will produce rising inequality of wealth under uh, certain conditions. And I think that part of what we are seeing today in terms of rising concentration of wealth has a lot to do with this. And I think to some extent, we are back to this inequality, which in the book I write uh, R bigger than G, the rate of return to wealth bigger than the growth rate, which we already had in the 19th century. And I think this is not the only force that's playing a role, but this is a powerful force that tends to push in the direction of rising inequality. And if we don't have uh, proper institutions, in particular a proper uh, tax system in order to keep control of this kind of dynamic uh, evolution, then, you know, I think there's a possibility that we return to a level of extreme wealth concentration, which we had in the 19th century and until World War One, and which not only was useless from the point of view of economic growth, but 
also this kind of extreme inequality of wealth made it very difficult. If you look at Europe, the early 20th century prior to World War One, made it very difficult for the democratic process to work properly because when you have such a large concentration of wealth, there's a risk that the political process itself can be captured by the top income and top wealth group in society. And maybe we are beginning to have the same problem in the, in the US right now. It's important to realize that there's no natural force that can prevent this from happening because these two notions are determined by different forces and they have just no reason to be equal. So it will be a mistake just to, to count on you know, natural harmony and natural forces to keep this process under control. Can I ask you about the super managers, these top executives who mm-hmm. earn enormous salaries and these very convoluted compensation packages? What are you proposing to do with these types of people? Because obviously you have these super elite, super wealthy people in life, the top 1%. But there's also that other layer of incredibly well-off people who aren't being taxed appropriately and who are contributing to the inequalities as well. Right. In the very long run, I think the super wealthy problem is more important than the super manager problem. But of course, both are important because, you know, super manager at some point can become super wealthy when they accumulate wealth and transmit the wealth to the next generation. So the two processes are interrelated. Now, for the super manager, I think the right policy tool is progressive tax and income. I think the evidence from around the world, and in particular from the US and Europe, is that one of the explanation for the huge rise in top managerial compensation, particularly in the US since the 1980s, has to do with the fact that the top tax rate applying to very, very high executive compensation were reduced enormously in the US. You know, they used to be 70%, 80% back in the 60s, 70s. They were reduced to 30% or you know, even less than 30% at some point under Reagan. And, and this has changed the name of the game completely in terms of incentives for super managers to, to uh, set their own pay and try to get enormous increase. Now, the evidence that we have suggests that this had little impact in most cases on their performance, you know, in the sense that you know, the performance of the U.S. economy or the European economies since the 1980s has not been particularly good. And if you compare your companies that are paying their manager $10 million instead of $1 million, you know, it's not that they are doing any better. The impact on productivity and economic performance of this super manager, extremely large compensation package, is that there's just little impact. And so here, the right way to keep this under control, uh, in, in my view, and from the evidence uh, that uh, I have collected with a number of colleagues, will be a return to very high top income tax rate at the very top of the distribution. So, you know, I'm not talking of incomes of 100 or 200 or even 300,000 euros or dollars. I'm talking of incomes of one, two, three or more million, really very, very high incomes, which just do not seem to be all that useful for uh, performance. Can you talk me through some of your intriguing research on public debt? There are lots of examples uh, in history 
history of very large public debt. In fact, right now we have about roughly 100% of GDP and public debt on average in Europe or in, in North America. You can find in history uh, examples of public debt that are even bigger than that. Like you know, in, in Britain in the 19th century, after the Napoleonic Wars, you have about 200% of GDP in public debt. And also in the 20th century, after World War II, you know, at the end of World War II, you have debt exceeding 200% of GDP, you know, in Germany or in France. So what do we learn about the different ways of getting rid of such a large public debt? And it's, it's very interesting because, you know, there are different ways in history to, to deal with that. Now, the British experience in the 19th century is the perfect example of getting rid of public debt only through austerity, if you want, through a budget surplus. Now, this can work, but this takes a very long time. Okay, so the experience of UK in the 19th century is quite remarkable in that respect. You know, it took an entire century. So between 1815 and 1913, you know, on average, the UK budget had a surplus of 1% to 2% of GDP, which means that the British taxpayers, particularly lower and middle class uh, paying uh, consumption tax, were paying in tax revenue 1% or 2% of GDP more than what they would get in public spending, and they, the difference will go to pay the interest to bondholders and uh, typically rather wealthy people holding the, the public debt. Now, this took an entire century because, you know, if you start with a very large like 200% of GDP public debt and just having surplus of 1% or 2% per year, it takes a very long time. Now, another way, much faster way to deal with that is what happened in the 20th century, which is through inflation. So if you take the case of France in 1945, 1946, 1947, 48, you have over 50% annual inflation rate during five consecutive years. So of course, if you have 50% inflation per year during five years, you know, in 1950, you don't have public debt anymore. Start with 200% of GDP and you end up with, you know, less than 10% of GDP in public debt in 1950. And, you know, it's much easier to start uh, the reconstruction of the country with no public debt. Now, the problem with inflation is that it is so powerful that it destroys not only the public debt, but it can also destroy the saving of many lower class and middle class households. And this is why in France in the 1950s, you have a lot of old age poverty because, you know, many old people have been, you know, have seen their saving accounts completely uh, destroyed by inflation. And, you know, this explains why inflation in France, but also even more so, of course, in Germany, as people have a bad memory of inflation, they feel quite rightly that it's so powerful that you know, not only you destroy public debt, but you destroy a lot more. So this is why I think, you know, on the basis of this historical experience, if we don't want austerity for an entire century, if we don't want huge inflation, we have to invent something else. And in an ideal world, the right way will be a progressive tax on private wealth, which is a little bit like inflation, except that this is, if you wish, a civilized form of inflation, because this is like, instead of taxing more the low wealth or middle wealth households and who only have saving accounts, you have a progressive tax structure where actually you don't tax at all people, say, below 200,000 euros or 300,000 euros in wealth, and then you tax at a higher rate people between 300,000 and 1 million, and then people who have many millions or many billions will be taxed at higher rate. So ideally, you know, we with sufficient uh, fiscal coordination, uh, you can have a distribution of the fiscal adjustment that is uh, a lot more uh, acceptable than what you get with inflation. And you have
have the same advantage of inflation, which is that you can reduce public debt very quickly. And just to conclude, what history tells us is that we are right now at a time period, particularly in Europe, where we have a lot of public debt, but at the same time, we have a lot of private wealth. And in fact, private wealth has increased much more than public debt has increased. So it's a little bit of a paradox that we are so concerned about the public debt, and at the same time, we've never accumulated so much private wealth. So the lesson from history is that we have to find ways, and if possible, better, more organized ways than what we had in the past to, to solve this problem. And surely, with respect to that, Thomas, we need more robust moral and political leadership because that has to be the lesson of history. Yes, you're definitely right. We need political leaders who sort of uh, uh, try to learn from these lessons of history and who try to derive the best experience from there. Also, at some level, one could say that we have the political leaders that we all uh, deserve in a way. So, you know, I think the political leaders often do uh, what they feel uh, everybody wants them to do and they are the product of the public opinion and they are the product of ourselves uh, much more than we are the product of themselves and what they believe. So I think in the end what really matters is that these economic issues are addressed by every one of us. They do not belong either to economists or to politicians. They belong to all of us and they are not technical issues. There are issues that everybody can make his or her own mind about, about them and ultimate the purpose of the book is not so much to convince political leaders to be heroic, but rather to convince every citizen and that these issues belong to all of us. And one of those is a very felt issue, and that would be the wage inequalities we have in our financial structures. Right. So the financial system has become absolutely enormous, both in terms of size of assets and also in terms of very extreme wages that you observe, you know, in the largest financial institutions. And I think this is one of the reasons why we need a lot more financial transparency that we have today and why we need to have the sort of registry of financial assets in order to regulate financial institutions. We don't have such financial financial transparency today and this makes it really difficult to deal with financial crises and to deal with uh, bankruptcy uh, as we've had in the past. And so, you know, I think the issue of taxation and the issue of transparency and financial transparency are closely related and we need to make progress on both fronts at the same time. Now, Thomas, you have some very revealing research on countries all across the world. I was particularly interested to read about China and Colombia and Argentina. Can you talk me through some of these economies and how they compare to America? First, I should say that there are limits to what we know about these countries. So, you know, I don't want to draw a too strong conclusions. The book, unfortunately, relies mostly on the experience of rich countries because data that we have on emerging countries and the evolution of inequality in emerging countries is unfortunately much less strong and developed than what we have for rich countries. So that being said, it is quite striking to see that in countries like Colombia or India, from the data that we have, the inequality in income and in particular the inequality in labor income is not necessarily higher than what we have in a country like the US, which I think is quite striking because you would expect that the inequality of educational achievement in a country like India should be really enormous uh, with a big part of the population 
education that is almost illiterate or has very little primary schooling. And then some people who have MBAs, we would expect that the inequality of skills and therefore the inequality of labor income and opportunities to find high-paying jobs is much higher in a country like India than in a country like, like the U.S. And in fact, if you look in particular at the top of the distribution of labor income and you compare the gap with the average income of each country, the gap appears to be, uh, if anything, uh, even higher in the U.S. than in India, which I believe shows that education is not enough to regulate the distribution of income. You know, of course, education is key and, and you need to have more equal access to education in India and also in the US, you know, if you want to reduce inequality of opportunity and inequality of wages. But that's not enough because in the US, what you observe is huge inequality of wages within groups of workers with comparable degrees. And in particular, if you take within the top few percent or the, the top 10 percent or the top five percent, of the distribution of wages, you can see in the U.S. that it's only the very, very top managerial positions that have managed to absorb a disproportionate fraction of the total wages. And I think this has more to do with the ability of top managers to, in effect, set their own pay. You know, so it's not really the invisible end of the market. It's more like the grabbing end of uh, people who are setting up their own pay than really the effect of education. Okay? So I think this kind of comparison, both historical and cross-country can allow us to better assess the relative importance of the different mechanisms, in particular education and taxation. So Thomas, are we essentially living in cloud cuckoo land? Is it all a bit of a fairy tale and a capitalist dream that capitalism is clearly functioning in terms of what it was originally set out to do? But part of that was that it would drive the inequalities and the gaps between rich and poor. So what's likely to happen in 100 years time? Where will the world be if we continue to drive these inequalities? What are we looking at? Well, I am better at analyzing the the past and the future. It's not as if I I knew what was going to happen. But what I know is that in the past century, wars and violent events have played a major role in regulating inequality, if you wish, at least in reducing inequality. And I think it's important to be aware of that in order to design uh, new ways and, you know, more peaceful and, and also more efficient ways to regulate inequality. It's important to realize that, you know, natural forces uh, per se uh, do not guarantee that we will keep inequality under control and that uh, inequality will be uh, compatible with our democratic institutions and with proper working of our political uh, system. So there are several possible futures. You know, nobody knows what's going to happen. I've chosen to write books uh, rather than to be a guerrero. So I I tend to believe that, you know, uh, books and democratic debate, rational discussion can help us to get to the right form of international cooperation. I want to believe in a new form of internationalism uh, where we can, uh, particularly in, in Europe, but more generally at the world level, we can cooperate to fight uh, efficiently against tax havens and have real cooperation to regulate capitalism. Now, of course, this is not the only possible uh, scenario. I think there is a scenario where you have uh, rising inequality within countries, which can lead either to uh, gradual captures of the political process by a little oligarchy, uh, or you can have also a strong uh, national 
nationalist reaction to this. You know, when you don't know how to solve uh, your internal inequality problem, you know, it's always very tempting to blame other countries, to blame China or Germany or whatever. And nobody knows how these things can end, can be certainly uh, even worse than the world wars that were in fact mostly European wars that we had in the 20th century. So there are several possible futures. The good news is that we can always change the future by having a better economic institution. So economics is not only about pure economic forces. Collective rules and collective institutions matter a lot and can get us to a better future. electronic artist and composer Sylvian Chavot, ending this morning's interview with economist and author Thomas Piketty. Coming up next, celebrating Africa Day and the enormous contribution of African writing to world literature. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. There are a lot of stories that I think people should be open to reading because they'll give them an experience of a global culture. These aren't just cultures that are in remote parts of the world. They're cultures that are very much in your mind, in your living room. You're engaged with Africa already because you're buying products from Africa. You are invested in African music a lot of the time. So I think it's very important that people read expansively and maybe try to find authors who are maybe from Africa, but writing about things that you deeply care about. So if you want to read about love, you can read Chimamanda's Half of a Yellow Sun as a love story. If you want to read about history, you can read an um, African writer called Ayikwe Armour, a book called The Healers. If you want to read about how single independent woman navigates her life in a city, you can read Amar Taidu's Changes. So there's some very, very powerful African novels which you don't have to read as African culture. They're just beautiful books. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books on Newstalk 106 to 108. I'm Susan Cahill. Well, it's Africa Day, so we're going to celebrate the diversity, the rhythm and vibrancy that is African literature to the gorgeous, soothing sounds of Senegalese singer and songwriter Habib Koite. And of course, if you want to get in contact with the show, well, why don't you drop me a line at talkingbooks at newstalk.ie. It's always lovely hearing from you. Really lovely. OK, let's celebrate Africa. Does literature embrace a global culture? And how have issues like African freedom and democracy impacted on contemporary African literature? Well, this year, Port Harcourt City in River State, Nigeria, was conferred the status of UNESCO World Books Capital, the first African city south of the Sahara to have such a status, Bogota and Beirut having held the title previously. Now, Nigeria has a rich writing tradition and has produced some amazing writers and, of course, some spellbinding novels. Think of Shinwa Achebe and, of course, Wale Soininka. Well, one of the interesting side projects of the UNESCO World Books Capital is the Africa 39 Project. The 39 Project consists of a selection of 39 writers under the age of 40 who have the potential and the talent to define the trends that will mark the future development of literature in a certain language or region. Those on the list include popular writers from Congo, Senegal, Cape Verde, Uganda, 
Kenya and Nigeria, to name but a few. Well, early in the week, I took a flight over to London to meet with Dele Fatunla, writer and communications coordinator for the Royal African Society. Dele talked me through some of the joints of African literature. Let's have a listen. Particularly nowadays, African literature is acknowledged as being one of the great literary traditions. Of course, it's not a recent thing. One of the most famous works of literature in the world, Aesop's Fables, actually has an origin in African literature because the word Aesop comes from the word Ethiop, which means Africa, which means Ethiopia. And of course, we know that in recent years, a lot of great African writers have been honoured. For example, Chinua Achebe, who is very famous worldwide for his novel, Things Fall Apart. And Wale Shoinka, obviously, who was the first Nobel laureate that Africa has produced. And of course, when you go to Egypt, there's Nagib Mahfouz. There's just a great literary tradition coming out of Africa, um, both from male and female writers. And of course, Dele, we have some tremendous female voices from countries like Senegal. The outstanding Mariama Ba. Yes, uh, Mariama Ba's novel, So Long a Letter, is one of the most beautiful works of African literature. It's a series of letters between two women discussing their conditions in life, really, after the death of one of their husbands. And it's such a beautiful book. And not only beautiful but also intensely political because it really brought to the fore stories of women's roles in African societies and as well I guess women's positions as people who are able to articulate their own sorrows their own pains and their own political solutions as well. Now Dele your parents came to London from Nigeria and Nigeria has a rich tradition and historically has possibly produced some of the best-selling African writers. We have the recently deceased Shinua Achebe who had transformed I suppose how Westerners looked at Africa and certainly the stories that were coming out of Africa. Yes, certainly. I think Chinua Achebe was one of the most important writers in African history. He's hailed a lot of the time in the West as the father of African literature, which was a title that he himself didn't necessarily want or actually claim. I think what was very important about Chinua Achebe was that he was a writer who came to fruition during Africa's decolonization in the 1960s. A lot of countries were gaining their independence from countries like Britain and France. And he really gave Africans a sense of their own position and value in terms of being able to use the tools of empire to actually talk about their own history eloquently. So when you read his book, Things Fall Apart, what he's really talking about is a valorization of African identity and also just presenting African culture in a way that's very powerful and very beautiful to audiences that many times up until then hadn't really learned or been able to appreciate African history. So when you read Things Fall Apart, you're really reading the exposition of cultures that are centuries old, but expressed in the English language, for example. And of course, Half of the Yellow Sun from Shimamanda Adichie, the Nigerian writer, she has done incredibly well. She's an amazing literary phenomenon. Her first novel was called Purple Hibiscus and it was a coming-of-age story set in Nigeria and actually published first in Nigeria. And her book, Half of the Yellow Sun, is about Nigeria's civil war called the Biafra War and is really a very powerful novel. Recently been made into a film. I think a lot of people would probably have read it and not realise that, you know, this is part of Nigerian literature. It's just one of those very powerful global stories that really moves people. Shimamanda won the Orange Prize for that book. Yes, she did. And she's won a number of other accolades. I mean, she's recently won uh, what's called in America a Genius Grant from the MacArthur Foundation, which gives you $500,000 to do whatever you like, uh, which is fantastic. But she's she's really hailed as a sort of voice of a new generation. And she headlines what is a really big groundswell of young African voices. And it should be said, female African voices, which in the past, we weren't necessarily hearing as many of them as, as now. And it's really important that we celebrate her in that way as well. And Dele, one of the things that I do when I want to discover new African voices is look at the Kane Prize. Can you 
you tell me about that award? Because it's financially it's the largest award mm. for African writers. It's a prize that gives awards to short stories published in English or translated from an African language or, or otherwise into English by African writers. And it's done really well. In fact, our festival, which happens annually, Africa Writes, is linked to the Kane Prize. And what it does a lot of the time is that it recognizes young or new talent, not necessarily young talent, but new talent, and gives them a platform for their voices to be heard. So a lot of the Kane Prize winners have gone on to do amazing things and become prominent voices in African literature. Binyavanga Wainana, who was one of the Kane Prize winners, um, a Ugandan writer who's also one for a short story called Under the Jambula Tree. So there are a lot of fantastic, amazing voices that have come out of these prizes. And that's why it's really important that there are lots of different prizes, not just the Kane Prize, but lots of different prizes which celebrate African writers and not just African writing in English, but the variety of African writing that's happening in French, English and in indigenous African languages as well. And recently, Dele, you had Wale Shoyinka, the Nigerian Nobel Laureate. He's a hero for lots of Africans, isn't he? Yeah, um, Wale Shoyinka is turning 80 this year and he's celebrated not just for his writing but for his political activism so there's always going to be a phenomenal response when somebody like that comes to audiences in the UK and it must be said I think particularly with age people have a lot more reverence I think he's, his work is celebrated not just because of and like many of the African writers of his generation not just because of their um, of their work but also because of the statements and the positions that they took on African freedom African democracy and in terms of his writing their ability to translate a lot of African traditions into English and, and in many ways bring them to a global audience. I think that's one thing that Wale Shoenka is celebrated for. His One of his most famous plays is called Death and the King's Horseman, which explores the particular incident, not a cultural clash, more a kind of ideological battle of cultures between Britain as a colonial power and the Yoruba culture from which he came. And it's just a phenomenal piece of literature and as is most of his work. And what's interesting about Wale is that he has influenced some of the great leaders across Africa and also in terms of the West. His writing has had a unique ability to create a dialogue. Yeah, I think Oleshenka's writing has been very powerful in discussing the, not explaining Africa to the world. I mean, in recent in recent years, his writing has become a lot more focused on the issues of Africa. So, for example, he's got a, a book called that You Must Set Forth at Dawn, in which he explores the kind of paradigms for a new construction of Africa. So, I think he's been phenomenally influential in shaping the minds of young Africans and people remains a sort of figure of kind of those intellectual ferment and just this independent thought and resistance to any kind of dogmatic idea of what African culture is or should be. Dele, can we talk a little bit about the Africa 39 project and the spirit of bringing these adventurous new contemporary writers out of Africa onto the global stage? It's quite a long list you're drawing up and there's a range of poets, dramatists, activists, writers. Can you tell me about the project? Because there's some great names there and some of them have very curious backgrounds. Yeah, I mean, I think the the Africa 39 project is amazing Amazing. It's actually linked to a thing called the World Book Capital. And this year, the World Book Capital is in Port Harcourt, which is in Nigeria. And so because of that, they've picked 39 writers from across Africa. This is something that has happened for a couple of other places in the world as well. I think Bogota being the last one. And it really is a project that's focusing on finding the 39 most up-and-coming, rising, most promising African writers under the age of 40. So it has 
thrown up quite a beautifully diverse list of names from all across the continent. An amazing gender diversity, I think it should be said. It's a it's a great project in that respect. There are a lot of usual suspects on the list, including Chimamanda Adichie, who we've talked about. You also find there's an amazing Ethiopian writer called Dino Mengistu on the list. You have a number of female writers. There's a Ivorian lady called Edwige René Dro, Eileen Barbosa from Cape Verde. You have Linda Musita from Kenya, Chibundu Onuzo from Nigeria, Tai Selassie from Ghana. So there's just a sort of very rich list of writers who are coming from very diverse backgrounds. And also not just writing in the languages that have tended to dominate African literature globally, so English and French. Actually, you have, for example, a writer called Richard Mutu, who writes in Lingala, which is one of the major languages of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Beautiful diversity of lists. But there's one very contentious figure who has a very troubled and somewhat disputed past. The Nigerian poet and writer Chris Abani. Can we talk a little bit about it? because he was on death row. He's been in prison three times. He got released from prison in very curious circumstances, somewhat questionable. And some of his experiences that he's put out through his writing and activism have been questioned. It's very hard to get the facts established, what's truth and what's fiction. But he has written some incredibly interesting writings on the government and attacks on the government. And it's got him in a lot of hot water. Yeah, I think the... the um, I should make like clear, Chris Abani is not on the, on the Africa 39 list but he is a writer who for a time was widely celebrated as a dissident writer who had been very bold in critiquing the government I mean, he's a writer who's widely celebrated and a lot of people love his writing. There's some contention as to his experience because while he claimed that he was in prison, there's no independent corroboration of, of his experience during the dictatorship era in Nigeria, the most recent dictatorship era in Nigeria. So because of that, I suppose his reputation is in contention. But I presume there'll be a lot of people who still celebrate him as a great writer in spite of the fact or maybe because of the fact that he's a great storyteller, whether that extends to what he said about his life experience or not. It wouldn't be for me to say, but I think that he's certainly one of the more colourful characters in African literature at the moment. Now, one of the ladies who is on the Africa 39 list is the Afro-Belgian writer. She's of Nigerian origin, Chika Onigwe. She's been up for the Kane Prize for African writing. She's been very successful. One of her recent books on Black Sister Street really revved up her profile in terms of garnering an international audience. Can we talk about her writing? She's a very interesting lady. Yeah, um, Chika Onigwe is one of the new, sort of very bold voices coming out, out of Nigeria, so to speak, and the African diaspora, because she lives in Belgium now. And her book on Black Sister Street is a book exploring the experiences of female Nigerian immigrants who end up in prostitution. So it's actually quite a harrowing book, but it is also beautifully written and gritty in some sense. But she's one of the series of bold new voices that are, I suppose, exploring the African experience from a new perspective, often from outside of Africa, but with a still very strong connection to the continent. She's also quite an outspoken voice. Um, Recently, she wrote a peace following the abduction of about 200 children in the north of Nigeria by the militant Islamic group Boko Haram and questioning where the values of the country were in terms of our, our relationship with protecting our children. So she's definitely a hugely important literary as well as social voice. And she's published quite a lot of books but her latest book Black Messiah is about an abolitionist and it's a new departure really for her in terms of historical fiction. I think what's very interesting now is that a lot of African writers are also very interested in not only in 
African history as a source of their fiction, but also in African traditions, African cultures, because I think literature in particular is very important for Africans in terms of reinterpreting history, because a lot of um, African history was subverted or silenced during the era of colonialism. So it's very important that literature engages with this. So I think that kind of book that Chika is writing, not only for that purpose, but also for its literary merit will be very important. I have to say, Dele, I'm particularly interested in the Ghanaian poet, Nee Parks. He, he describes himself as a performance poet. Can you tell me about him? Because he's, he's a very good heart and he has used his writing not only to create dialogues and create spaces for change and understanding about Africa, but also to empower young and emerging writers from Ghana to establish their own voices. Yeah, I think Nee's, um, I guess he'd probably describe himself as a literary activist as well as a writer. Um, you mentioned his publishing company Flipdie, which was set up here in the UK um, and has actually helped to bring up voices of a lot of younger and other African writers, including a young poet who won the inaugural African po- Prize for Poetry, Warsan Shire. He's a novelist as well as a, um, as a poet. So I think that he's one of the crucial voices who see their role, not as just as people who have to write, but people who have to write and also empower others to write and also create a literary infrastructure. So I think those things are important, but I think that's where kind of literary activism becomes very important. So which is why prizes are important, which is why literary workshops are important, which is why festivals are important. They're all very important, LA, but a lot of, let's say, Irish audiences wouldn't feel that African novels are for them. They're happy with maybe buying British-American writers, the odd bit of French or Dutch-translated writers, but really, Africa really is a bit left field for them. Oh, I mean, the first thing I'd say is that I think Yeats was, was Irish, and Chinua Achebe, obviously one of the most celebrated African writers, I was influenced by Yeats, and he borrowed one of the titles from his poems, I think Things Fall Apart, comes from one of his poems and there's a long experience and history that actually a lot of African countries share with Ireland. The experience of colonialism I think is very deep rooted in um, Irish culture and literature and I think it's the same in African literature and I think you'll find that there's a lot of resonance there Um, and I think just on a human level there are a lot of stories that I think people should be open to reading because they'll give them an experience of a global culture. Um, These aren't just cultures that are in remote parts of the world. They're cultures that are very much um, in your mind, in your living room. You're engaged with Africa already because you're buying products from Africa. You are invested in African um, music a lot of the time. So I think it's very important that people read expansively and maybe try to find authors who are maybe from Africa, but writing about things that you deeply care about. So um, if you want to read about love, you can read Chimamanda's Half of a Yellow Sun as a love story. Um, if you want to read about history, you can read an um, African writer called Ayikwe Armour, a book called The Healers. Um, if you want to read about how single independent woman navigates her life in a city, you can read Amata Edu's Changes. So there's some very, very powerful African novels which you don't have to read as African culture. They're just beautiful books. Do you think that we finally turned to corner in terms of how the West relates to Africa, that we have emerged from the colonial legacies and the conflict and the turbulence, and that there is a future for Africa in terms of African literature and culture, that it can enjoy its rightful place in the global sphere. I think there's there's always been a future for Africa, but I think that in terms of the, how the West relates to Africa, there's certainly a lot more progress. I think that people are now more open to seeing Africa in the rich diversity that it has always had and more open to 
learning, listening to and seeing African culture in, you know, in, in a very, in a not one dimensional way. A lot of engagement still has to be done. I think people need to familiarize themselves with the continent's history, um, with the continent's experiences, and also to kind of have a certain level of, I think, humility when approaching the, the history of the continent, just because the, a lot of things have been got so wrong that um, it's very important to listen to African voices. And I think that that's where, in a way, some of what we're trying to do with our literature festival is to bring people's voices to the fore and bring African voices to a world stage. But be aware that, that that's not the only conversation happening, but that it's an important part of the conversation and making sure that that conversation really involves Africans in the deepest way possible. And that was Dele Fatunla, Writer and Communications Coordinator for the Royal African Society, talking to me about the Africa 39 project. Okay, I wanted to get a female take on African literature, so I gave Nana Ayibia a call. Nana earned an MBE in 2011 for her contribution to promoting African literature worldwide. She runs a very successful publishing house in London called Ayibia Clark Publishing and is quite the expert on all the flourishing trends taking place in African literature. I asked Nana what female writers should we be celebrating on Africa Day? All our great writers at the moment are hailed as the male, the men writers. But I have a different angle because being an African woman, I want to celebrate a woman writer for Africa Day. Ama Atta Aidu. She is one of my writers, one of the writers I've worked with for a long time. Ama Ataidu is a fearless feminist. She's a playwright. She's a novelist. She's a short story writer. But she's also doing a lot of work championing women, encouraging women, giving women space. In a crash, she set up this foundation where women can go and have space and have books and computers and just have the quietude that you need to be able to write. Because a lot of the time, our women complain about not being able to find a space in which to write. Going back to Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own. So she set up this foundation called Mbasem. Mbasem really means women's issues. And she invites women to get out of their homes, come in there, and she gives them the space and the time and the resources just to write. I think that's remarkable. Can I ask you, you know, last month we commemorated 20 years since the Rwandan genocide. Mm. And I know that you have a very interesting Senegalese writer on your books, Boris Boubacar Diop. And he's just bringing out a book called Africa Beyond the Mirror. And it's looking at the Rwandan genocide and it's a series of reflections. It sounds like a very interesting publication. I feel very honoured to have been associated with Boris's writing. He said the media tends to portray Africa in a manner that grossly distorts reality. The picture they paint is intended to make people of African descent feel ashamed of their past and their identity. This is unacceptable and must change. It is therefore a moral imperative for all those who can make themselves heard to speak out about the real Africa. And Boris does that quite exquisitely. He's one of the giants of African literature. He's also an academic, published widely. He's been a journalist. He's very innovative when it comes to the word. In Africa, he is one of the giants. He is a giant. But, you know, his work is so very little known. And I think that's because he writes primarily in French first. And this is why Ayabia and my publishing house has taken on the task of translating his work into English. I think more people should read Boris's work 
He is an amazing writer. I just read you something he said that really caught my eye when I first came across this book. He said, projecting one's gaze beyond the mirror means trying to expose the lies that hide behind so many cliches that are common currency about Africa. Above all, it means ringing the alarm bell as a warning against the sinister political intentions that feed a growing negrophobia. And of course, when we have Boko Haram dominating the news agenda and what's happened to those poor, unfortunate school children, this only cements the stereotypes of yeah. mad, crazy Africa. Indeed. And Boko Haram is not something that Boris would even entertain. I mean, Wole Shohinka has been touring the UK this past week and he's been talking about Boko Haram, if I can remember, for the past five, ten years. He has been sounding the alarm bell that Boris is talking about, about Boko Haram, about how they should be contained and, you know, engaged and completely wiped out because it's a threat not just to Africa but to the rest of the world. Wole Shoenka has been sounding the alarm bell that Boris is talking about, that this group must be you know, interrogated and engaged. And nobody has taken any notice of him. So what he's saying is, yes, there are the unpleasant elements about Africa. But please, when you report on Africa, when you write about Africa, when you portray Africa, portray it in a balanced way. was Nana Ayibia, Managing Director of Ayibia Clark Publishing, talking to me about the contribution of African writers to world literature. And I'd just like to say a big thank you to the Simon Cumbers Media Fund and Irish Aid who supported my trip to London. And for those of you who are interested in exploring African culture and of course its tremendous literature, well there's lots of Africa Day events in Cork, Limerick, Galway, Watford and Dublin today. So all you need to do is check out www.africaday.ie and there's lots of details there for what events are closest to you. And I'd also like to say a big well done to Dublin Writers Festival for putting on a tremendous range of book events this week. I managed to get down to a few of them and I have to say they're a great fun, very lively and also really interesting. They pick some great authors. Okay, that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Well, all that's left for me to do is to say a big thank you to Owen Holligan on research and the lovely Alan Regan on sound. We've been talking books. To quote the great Nigerian writer Shinwa Shebe, once you allow yourself to identify with the people in a story, then you might begin to see yourself in that story, even if on the surface it's far removed from your situation.
Thanks for listening to this News Talk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.